This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Approximately once a month, we do a show without a guest. We do that not because we don't like having guests, but because we get so far behind in the materials we're trying to cover. Well, actually, it's a combination of the two. Because, dear listener, we'd rather bring you a quality guest than uh, one of dubious value, which frankly separates us from quite a few other radio programs out there. Of course, we probably should check with you, dear dear listener. Do you think we should have maybe more in-studio concerts by kazoo bands? But lest I digress, let us commence this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 19th of August. It was on August 19th in 1692 that four men and one woman were convicted of witchcraft and hanged in Salem, Massachusetts. On this date in 1812, during the War of 1812, a U.S. Navy frigate, the Constitution, defeated the British frigate Guerriere in a furious engagement off the coast of Nova Scotia. Witnesses claim that the British shot bounced off the Constitution's sides as if she were made of iron. By the war's end, old Ironsides had destroyed or captured seven more British ships, providing a tremendous boost in morale for the American Republic in an otherwise lackluster, stalemated, stupid conflict. It was during this conflict that British troops invaded Washington and burned the White House. We learn that in American history, but we forget or do not, or not told in the first place, was this was in retaliation for U.S. troops torching government buildings in Toronto. On August 19th in 1839, the French artist and inventor Louis Daguerre announced the first process to allow an image to be chemically fixed as a permanent picture. His invention, the beginning of photography, would become known as the daguerreotype. It produced outstanding images, superior in many respects to uh, modern photography. On August 19th in 1919, Afghanistan declared independence from the United Kingdom. The Afghan ruler Amanola introduced several social reforms, including the removal of women's veils and the establishment of co-educational schools. Many religious and tribal leaders opposed these reforms. Thank God over the last 91 years, the nation has made great strides forward. This date in 1934, Adolf Hitler, already chancellor, was also elected president of Germany in an unprecedented consolidation of power in the short history of the Republic. And if there ever was an example of power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely, Nazi Germany certainly has to be near the top of the list. And on August 19th in 1953... The Iranian military, with the support of the United States government, that is to say the Central Intelligence Agency, overthrew the duly elected government of Premier Mohammad Mossadegh and reinstated the Shah of Iran as the king. This was a move engineered by the Anglo-Iranian oil company, a British concern that couldn't get the British government to act, but when they raised the specter of communism taking over Iran, they did get the boys at the CIA involved. That oil company is better known today as BP. On next week's program, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, all the rumblings about war that are currently uh, raging about certain circles. You would think, after seeing how well the conflicts are going in Afghanistan and Iraq, that uh, 
going for the hat trick and connecting up those other fronts of war into a uh, basically a, a giant uh, Central Asian uh, conflagration would be thought of as maybe a bad idea. But let us defer that discussion uh, to next week. And when we do, let's see if we can't take a look back to 1953, because the history of the overthrow of the elected government in Iran is something that Iranians know quite a bit about and few Americans seem to. We were thinking about bringing Thomas Kinzer, the author of All the Shah's Men, onto this program. And you know what? It's not too late. We will look into that. All right, our quote of the day comes from the actress Joan Crawford, who supposedly once said, Love is a fire, but whether it's going to warm your heart or burn down your house, you never can tell. Boy, did she get that one right. Our quote of the day comes from Eugene Labiche, who once said, before doing someone a favor, make sure that he isn't a madman. That last comes from the Oxford Book of Aphorisms, sent to us by one of our listeners. Our joke of the day comes from stand-up comic and cannabis advocate Ngayo Bilam. Mr. McMillan and I took in his comedy stylings at uh, the Punchline on Sunday. Said the hilarious Mr. Bilam, You know, I'm a very, very competitive guy. One time I found myself in a circle jerk, and I took first and third. He's a funny guy. We'll be bringing him back. Our stat of the day, and we have two, are as follows. According to AOLnews.com, at least 14 countries have reported record high temperatures this year, which is on track to be the hottest year ever recorded throughout the world. In Iraq, where U.S. troops patrol in heavy armor, the temperatures topped 126 in July. And uh, Mr. McMillan asks, but I do not know the answer as to whether it was a dry heat. But all kidding aside, this global warming thing is scary and serious. And you people out there who doubt that it's happening, wake up. We will be talking more about that. Anyway, our second stat of the day, and this probably also should come from the Mixed Blessing Department is that according to the New York Daily News, a Harlem man who was wounded in a wild shootout with police last week may have set a record by surviving at least 21 bullet wounds. Angel Alvarez, age 23, is recovering after doctors dug the slugs out of his body. It's a miracle, said his lawyer. They missed the heart and major arteries. And just as an aside, we should note the passing of the Craigslist killer who apparently committed suicide in jail and at least uh, saved the taxpayers a lot of money. Even though the evidence against him was overwhelming, I'm sure a few bleeding hearts are saying that his suicide doesn't prove he was guilty. And actually, I guess it doesn't. And from the letters to the editor department, we have a comment from Chris who wrote us to say, I think you guys asked a couple weeks back about listeners' thoughts on Afghanistan. Here's what I wrote on my blog. Watched a frontline documentary on the war in Iraq. It was yet another quality documentary that brings home the realities of war and what we're asking these guys to do. I think it's far too easy to forget about these realities and sacrifices and the long-term consequence that war has on soldiers. We make the easily seen costs of war too easy to miss. It's like shopping at Walmart. We see low prices, but none of the downside that those low prices have on the workers in the supply chain or Walmart locations. Perhaps we should bring back the draft for this reason. But a real draft where guys like Cheney can't get around it because they're in school. If you're a man or woman and you can walk and you're between the ages of 18 and 45, you're eligible. 
Well, we agree, Chris, that the costs of war are made uh, easy to miss. But I have to disagree about the suggestion that we might want to bring back the draft. There will always be Rush Limbaugh's claiming they had their pilonidal cyst removed and thereby couldn't serve. And yes, Dick Cheney, who had like, what, five or six deferments, never served, later became head of the Pentagon, but decided that if we make everybody eligible, it'll make everybody more responsible, we won't go to war, is not something that reflects reality. I was in that last group of young Americans who faced a real draft. And without belaboring the point today, all I'm going to say is, bad idea. But thanks for that, Chris. All right, and from the, well, not quite from the letters to the editor section, but uh, we're going to borrow an item from New Scientist magazine. They sometimes pose a question, and then people write in to respond. The question was, Occasionally, our TV remote control stops working, but a quick jiggle on the batteries usually solves the problem. Why? What impact can this have on how they work or on the circuitry inside the remote control itself? And interestingly, three credible answers came back. The first from Joop van Monfort, whose name we just have to like, who said, The contacts on the remote handset which connect to the batteries are usually made of brass. This means they can oxidize, causing an interruption in the electrical circuit. During jiggling, the batteries will move around, scraping through the oxide layer. This reestablishes contact and the remote control functions again. In more critical equipment, this is avoided by gold plating the contacts. A different answer came from Rod Buck, who said, Remotes have microprocessors, and like any computer, they can freeze or lock up. This is usually due to a weird combination of key presses that the program writer didn't envisage. Removing the batteries reboots the program, and normal service is resumed. Well, I guess that's possible, too. And thirdly, Chris Evans weighed in with this. The chemical reaction in a battery slowly dissolves the casing and produces hydrogen gas at the central electrode, the bubbles of which break the electrical circuit. To prevent this, an oxidizing agent is used to convert the hydrogen into water. Too much of the oxidizing agent, however, would also cause the battery casing to dissolve. To prevent this, only a small amount of oxidizing agent is added to ensure it runs out before the casing dissolves. Unfortunately, this means that hydrogen bubbles build up on the electrode. Shaking can make these fall off so the circuit can work again. All right, ladies and gentlemen, three, three different explanations. Take your pick. And, uh, and no, new scientists did not elect uh, to pick among those three as to which they judged most correct. That is left up to the intelligent reader, or in our case, listener. But uh, Mr. Rodbuck had a little aside we probably should mention as well. He said, as a TV aerial engineer, people's use of remotes always amuses me. Gender differences are especially humorous. Women, if in difficulties with a remote, give the remote a little subconscious push toward the TV as they press. Men, on the other hand, usually shake the remote or bang it on a hard object. Anyway, I think we should move ahead into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for Superman saving the day. Actually, in real life. 
Reportedly, an unidentified family facing foreclosure on their home was going through some old boxes when a family member came across a copy of Action Comics Number 1, considered the holy grail of comics because it marks Superman's first appearance. The comic book is expected to fetch about $250,000 at auction. Auctioneers reportedly spoke with the bank, which has agreed to allow the family to remain in their home until they receive the money from the auction to catch up on their house payments. And uh, according to The Week magazine, it was a bad week last week for distractions. This is after a British aquarium had to dress an underwater statue of a topless mermaid in a bikini because so many male visitors were ignoring the marine life around her. Said an aquarium official, we hadn't noticed quite how buxom Sally was. And it was kind of an ugly week last week for the First Amendment after the FBI sent a letter to Wikipedia demanding that the site take down an image of the FBI seal from its article on the Bureau. Wikipedia, to its credit, refused, quote, with all appropriate respect, unquote. And uh, we have a bonus item from the bad and ugly file. Apparently, nitwit New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson is seriously considering pardoning Billy the Kid. Apparently, the descendants of the Old West lawman Pat Garrett tried to convince the governor not to do this, but he apparently still has not made up his mind. The Garrett family members note that Richardson is considering a pardon, get this, because territorial governor Lou Wallace didn't follow through on a promised pardon after the kid testified about killings that happened during the so-called Lincoln County War. You know, you'd think Bill Richardson has more important things to occupy his time. For example, as Greg Pallast pointed out in the 2004 election, vast numbers of people seem to be voting for the local sheriff and dog catcher, but apparently didn't cast ballots for president. And oh yeah, in a squeaker, Bush just managed to carry New Mexico. It turned out it was a moot point because they stole Ohio. But you do have to weigh these things. Let's see. Stealing your state's electoral votes or pardoning Billy the Kid? Hmm. And uh, speaking of the Week magazine, it was is with great delight that we note that uh, their The Last Word section, which usually comes at the, uh, at, the, at the end of the edition, has two pages devoted to Mary Roach's essay on My Escape from Gravity. We thoroughly enjoyed having Mary Roach on last week's program and thought there's a few little quips we ought to dig out of this, uh, this essay, which, is, which comes out of her book, Packing for Mars. Mary, of course, was lucky enough to fly in those McDonnell Douglas uh, C-9 military transport jets that fly parabolas and produce uh, half a minute of um, zero-G conditions. Noted Mary, it was a team of brothers, Luftwaffe aerospace medical pioneers Fritz and Heinz Haber, who in 1950 dreamed up the technique known today as parabolic flight. The Habers theorized that if a pilot flies the same kind of parabolic arch as a short-range rocket, or baseball pop fly, then the passengers for anywhere from 20 to 35 seconds at the top and the downward segments of the arc 
will experience weightlessness. If the pilot then pulls out of the downward dive and heads back up and repeats the process over and over until his fuel runs low, science will have accumulated several minutes of weightlessness to work with at a fraction of the cost of building and launching rockets. By the way, Tom Hanks and the actors in Apollo 13 apparently logged more time in zero gravity for the filming of that film than an awful lot of astronauts. But I digress. Mary Roach went on, This was the moment when aerospace professionals were first contemplating sending men to the moon, and they were gripped with almost universal foreboding at the prospect of cutting loose from gravity's hold. What if a man's organs depended on gravity to function? What if the pumping of the heart failed to push his blood through the veins and instead merely churned it in place? What if his eyeballs changed shape and compromised his visual acuity? If he cut himself, would his blood still coagulate? They worried about pneumonia, heart failure, debilitating muscle cramps. But noted Mary, it was a pilot named Joe Kittinger who was the first human to test the Haber's theory. You can't get any real fun things unless you volunteer, Kittinger later said in an oral history that's on file at the New Mexico Museum of Space History. Kittinger would take a plane up at a 45-degree angle and then arc it over and plunge back down, all the while watching a golf ball suspended on a string from the cockpit ceiling. That was our instrumentation, Kittinger told me. When the plane achieved zero gravity, the golf ball started floating. So did Kittinger, of course, but he was strapped in his seat. As soon as it became clear that a few seconds of weightlessness was more entertaining than it was troublesome, the aerospace medicine crowd began to apply its boundless energy to the scenario of longer-duration missions. Noted Mary Roach, Kittinger has a, name, has a name for those researchers. Weenies. Said he, there were scientific papers put out all over the place by the experts that said that zero gravity was going to be the limit of putting man in space. And I just sat there and laughed my butt off because I loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so did Mary, as she informed us last week on the show. Like almost all the programs we've ever aired on Radio Parallax, it is available at our, on our website, radioparallax.com. And no, we still haven't updated our guest list, but <laughs> scroll around, you'll, you'll find some gems. And speaking of medical researchers, there's a famous line we're, we're taught in medical school, which is, when you're going along and you hear hoofbeats behind you, don't think of zebras. That, uh, that little bit of comedy did inspire yours truly as one of the co-editors of our medical school yearbook to place on its cover a lovely photograph of zebras. Because even if you're going to be running into horses the rest of your life, a lot of your medical education concentrates on zebras. Which is not to say you don't run into the occasional zebra. In fact, someone in Sacramento ran into one just the other day. Imagine, if you will, the surprise of Jennifer Mosier, who was driving down Winding Way in Sacramento at about 7.15 p.m. Saturday, when, upon crossing the intersection of Manzanita, had a zebra run into her car. Boy, I wonder how that phone call went with the insurance claims adjuster. Actually, this all came about because the owner of a couple zebras, Michael Mustangi, described as professional cowboy and animal trainer, was evidently having troubles with zebras escaping his father's Sacramento County property. So in the process of loading them into a truck to transport them to Oregon, they apparently got spooked by dogs and ran on the loose through Sacramento. The zebra hidden by the car, or I guess it's vice versa, apparently wasn't hurt badly, and 
County deputy sheriffs were able to round them both up and I guess get them packed up to Oregon. And I'm pretty sure that's not a task that's in their job description. Well done, gentlemen and ladies. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more.